You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. This special episode of the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast is all about Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia. Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia is a type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and this disease is a B-cell malignancy that is characterized by the accumulation of lymphoplasmacytic cells that produce monoclonal immunoglobulin N. Therefore, symptoms and complications of this disease are going to be related to the accumulation of IgM. Oral oncolytics have become integral to the treatment paradigm of Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia, with Burton's tyrosine kinase being central to treatment guidelines. Pharmacists have a critical role in proactively managing these patients to help optimize adherence and mitigate adverse effects. Here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. Pharmacy Podcast Nation, bringing you back to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. I love these. I'm learning things myself. I'm hoping that our listeners are getting value out of these. These are absolutely incredible subjects that we're digging into. All of the episodes are going to be linked in the show notes. If you're driving, if you're walking, chopping vegetables, exercising, do not worry. We will have the links in the show notes to take you to the full library of PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcasts. And with that, I would like to introduce Dr. Victoria Nishar. Welcome to Victoria. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing really well. I'm excited about today and learning about Waldenstrom. And before we get into that, tell our audience, tell our listeners just a little bit about your background. Yeah, so I am a clinical pharmacist specialist in hematology and I work at the University of Michigan Rogel Cancer Center in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, so I work in a clinic setting directly with patients with hematologic malignancies and directly with the patients that we'll be talking about today. In preparation for podcasts that I do with my most favorite providers, which are our pharmacists, I always look on the Intersphere and the Dr. Google resources, which is a no-no, I know, which I can only imagine pharmacists out there like it's probably nails on chalkboard. But I did go to the Mayo Clinic and looked up some of the symptoms and realized this was something I knew absolutely nothing about. So I'm excited about this conversation and understanding this more. Would you do um, a kind of a place setting for this disorder and really helping our listeners prepare for today's podcast, kind of going over what is um, Walderstrom. Yeah, so um, Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, other than being a mouthful to say, is a really distinct but rare malignancy. Um, it's referred to as a lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma, but it's really you know, a malignancy that I like to call as having a bit of an identity crisis because it has this overlap between 
uh, B cells, which give rise to our lymphomas, but it also secretes monoclonal immunoglobulin M or IgM into the blood. So it gives them this appearance as a plasma cell, uh, neoplasm. And so really we think, we don't know for sure, uh, but we think that this malignancy arises somewhere in the cell development where our B cells terminally differentiate into plasma cells. And I think it's really important that we understand that there are these overlap in the disease characteristics. This is technically a lymphoma, but it does show um, characteristics hallmark to plasma cell cancers. And it's important that we understand this distinction because when we talk about our drugs as pharmacists, drugs that work in lymphomas uh, work here, but also drugs that can work in plasma cell cancers. So, of course, I found information as I referenced that there was symptoms and signs that include easy bruising and bleeding from the nose and gums and fatigue and fever and headache. And it sounds absolutely awful. Can you kind of give us and our audience um, describe how a patient might present and what are the signs and symptoms uh, furthermore than what I had already mentioned? Yeah, so I think overall, you know, this is a very rare malignancy. Um, it's maybe about one to two percent of all of our hematologic cancers kind of together. But in general, patients present with a very overlapping um, and a variety of symptoms, clinical characteristics and symptoms. Because there is the overlap in the disease characteristics, uh, these patients will present with those symptoms, just like you mentioned, hallmark to our you know, lymphomas, things like fatigue and night sweats. The most common presenting symptom for this malignancy is really just a, a normocytic anemia and fatigue associated with that. However, patients can have swollen spleen, swollen liver, painful swollen lymph nodes. The really unique dimension though to the presenting symptoms that some patients have come from the secretion of that IgM protein. Um, and because IgM proteins are such a big bulky molecule, they really can cause damage kind of throughout the body, depositing into organs, so causing kidney injury. Um, it can cause, you know, some demyelination of our nerves. So many patients will present with varying degree of peripheral neuropathy. And then, you know, this IgM protein, depending on how much is secreted in each patient, can result in hyperviscosity syndrome, which can result in visual changes or neurologic and cardiovascular effects. And hyperviscosity syndrome is a medical emergency. So there's really a, a spectrum and a broad range of symptoms and signs that patients can present with. Um, it's kind of a little bit all over the place. So what about the genetic markers? Is it associated with specific genetic markers? So it is. Um, about 90% or more of patients will demonstrate a mutation in what's called MYD88. And we know that MYD88 is an adapter protein that works off toll-like receptors. And so when it when you have these mutations in MYD88, you get overactivation or chronic expression. And MYD88 signals through Bruton tyrosine kinase or BTK, and then eventually downstream leads to that uncontrolled cell growth and proliferation. Um, so MYD88 mutations are pretty much mutually exclusive to Waldenstrom's. There is a few instances where some other malignancies we could rarely see an MYD88 mutation, but once we see one of these, it kind of tips you off to this diagnosis. Um, 
The other, there's one other recurring genetic marker, and this is not as common as MYD88 mutations. Uh, this is found in about maybe 30% of patients, but it's mutations in our CXCR4 gene, which is a G protein coupled receptor. And it plays you know, a really important role in signaling downstream pathways, again, leading to that uncontrolled cell growth and survival. So all patients will be tested for MYD88 mutations. When we talk about treatments, um, CXCR4 mutations are becoming more important. And so we're starting to incorporate testing for those mutations up front as well. What about the prognosis, Victoria? What can you tell us about that? pathway and what, what's going to be taking place? What's the course of the disease? Yeah. So like we talked about, this is a rare malignancy overall and the side effects and the presenting symptoms and really the burden of a disease that a patient presents with can be extremely variable. And so unfortunately, while this is not a malignancy that we are able to cure at this point, I would say the prognosis is overall very good. We know that the median age that patients are diagnosed at is about 70, 71 years old. However, when we look at mortality, older patients over the age of 75, about half of them will pass away from other causes, not necessarily causes related to this malignancy. So while patients, um, this is not a curable and it's not something you know great to be diagnosed with, uh, patients can live for, for a very, very long time with this disease. Uh, we do have some validated scoring systems, particularly there is a revised IPSS scoring system for Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia, and it helps us to roughly determine a patient's prognosis, and there's a bunch of variables that you use to calculate, but really the main take-home point to that is really the number one variable that has the greatest impact on a patient's prognosis is their age, with older age being associated with a lower survival or a worse prognosis. Fortunately, though, many patients, when we, when we calculate their IPSS score, will fall into a very low-risk or low-risk category, where 10-year overall survival rates range from 60 to 80%, which is really great. Victoria, now let's get to the treatment because there's where pharmacists come in, and that is uh, an ability to change the lives that people are dealing with this. And your description of the current treatment, the paradigm, uh, the shift towards more oral treatment off options, which sounds a lot more um, simplistic than um, than something that might be infused or, or compounded or something. Can you kind of go into the treatments um, that are available today? Yeah. Um, so I think it's important first to note that because we're not going to cure this malignancy, our goals of treatment are really palliative. And really the intent is to have patients live as long as possible, feeling as good as possible. And so Sometimes, in a, in a lot of cases, actually, many patients present asymptomatically, so they have no symptoms of the disease. It's sometimes just picked up based on a uh, routine blood work, finding anemia, but the patient's really not symptomatic from it, but it sparks further workup of this anemia. And so not all patients need treatment right away, and some patients may never need treatment. And so the choice to really start a treatment is going to depend upon 
the totality of the patient's clinical and laboratory symptoms or how bad is their disease burden, um, indicating to us that we really need to treat or we can hold off. And so when we're deciding about treatment, the paradigm is going to be first, do we need to give treatment? Um, and if we do, the type of treatment that we give, the decision comes down to, again, what's the totality of the disease burden? Are there, is it just anemia or do they just have neuropathy and we could rely on a single agent drug like rituximab? We're really trying to get away with as minimal amount of treatment as possible because again, we're not going to cure these patients. But if the, if the disease burden or the symptoms are more intensive and we don't feel comfortable really relying on something single agent, that's when we start to look at combination-based approaches. And those you know, approaches, as you've mentioned, um, range anywhere from new novel oral agents, which is really great, to historical treatment options like chemotherapy. And so it's getting more, a little bit more complicated while having all these options. It's really, really great for patients. It does get a little bit more complicated and nuanced when it comes to selecting among all of these available options. The PTCE team has talked with uh, the Pharmacy Podcast Nation before about BTK inhibitors. It's really interesting to learn about that. And I wanted to really dig into this. What therapies do many patients start with when they need treatment? So it really depends on uh, the pros and cons um, of the available options. So of course, you know, we're going to look at the patient as the whole, as a whole and their comorbidities, which might lean us towards one option or another. Um, but when we have multiple options on the table, let's say, for example, we have our BTK inhibitors here in the front line, we're looking at ibrutinib and zanubrutinib, uh, or we're looking at a chemotherapy or more of a historical approach. We're going to look at the pros and cons where, you know, we know that the pros of oral options, BTK inhibitors, are that the patient, it's way more convenient for the patient. They can get treated in the comfort of their home. They don't need to come into our facility. Whereas chemotherapy is limited in that it's a little bit more invasive. Um, however, chemotherapy is a finite approach where Patients can get six cycles of treatment, which is about roughly six months of therapy, and then they stop and they go on an observation period. And we will observe them without any treatment until their disease or symptoms say, I need treatment again, which could be many years. It could be never. Um, it really depends on the patient. So chemotherapy offers a treatment break for patients, whereas our oral options are intended at this time to be given every day or twice daily, kind of indefinitely. So that's kind of some of the decision and some of the things we're using. Um, and we will present these both to the patient and kind of talk through the pros and cons from our perspective. And I'll really allow them to, to take an active approach in their treatment. Um, if the patient does not want chemotherapy, then you know we're not going to administer something that they don't want or they're not gonna be adherent to. It really sounds like the BTK inhibitors are becoming an important part of treatment for patients with Waldenstrom. What different BTK inhibitors are available and, and how are they working? Yeah, um, so in the front line, we have, like I mentioned, ibrutinib and zanubrutinib. And ibrutinib was kind of first to the scene in the setting. It was studied in the Innovate study. It was against rituximab. 
And so when we look at the efficacy in that study, not surprisingly, ibrutinib outperformed rituximab and it had really impressive efficacy. The median progression-free survival has not been reached yet at 50 months follow-up, which is really remarkable. Something though that we noticed, um, and this is, it was a very interesting phenomenon, was that we saw that in patients that have those CXCR4 mutations, which we talked about a little earlier, or in patients who do not have a mutation in MYD88, which is going to be a very small percentage of patients, um, we saw that patients had a lower and slower response to our BTK inhibitors than patients who do not have mutations in CXCR4 or who have mutations in MYD88. And historically, these recurrent genetic markers really did not impact a patient's prognosis. They didn't impact treatment selection, but we are testing for them more and more now because they become more important in this targeted therapy era. And it's, it's really interesting when you look at the biology of the cell and where these mutations occur. We know that when you have a mutation in CXCR4, um, you're going to circumvent BTK. And so you're going to drive growth of that malignant cell irrespective of BTK. And shutting down BTK is not going to be as effective as it might be in a different patient. And we know that MYD88, on the other hand, it feeds right into BTK. So if you have a mutation in MYD88, and that's your driver and that's pushing your gas pedal, well then shutting off BTK is a really effective method at shutting off cell growth. So if you don't have a mutation in MYD88, there's something else driving your cancer. Um, and so that's why our BTK inhibitors are not as effective. It doesn't mean we can't use these drugs, but this was the first time we noticed that having these different genetic markers in Waldenstrom's is going to impact how well a drug can work. So it, but it is predictive at this point. Um, the other BTK inhibitor we have in the frontline setting is Zanubrutinib. And I think everyone was very excited uh, about Zanubrutinib coming to the frontline because it was the first time two BTK inhibitors had ever been compared head to head to one another. And so Zanubrutinib actually went head to head against a Brutinib in the Aspen trial. And Zanubrutinib we know is a second generation BTK inhibitor. So wasn't developed to be better in terms of efficacy, but more on a toxicity profile perspective. And we really saw in the publication of the Aspen trial, no difference in efficacy, but both ibrutinib and zanubrutinib, again, have remarkable efficacy, very long durable responses in patients. Um, so that was very encouraging. And importantly, uh, we did see an improvement in the toxicity profile with zanubrutinib compared to ibrutinib. Um, in the relapse setting, we have both ibrutinib and zanubrutinib we can use, but we also have a calibrutinib which is an additional second-generation BTK inhibitor, very similar to zanubrutinib. And when we look at the three BTK inhibitors in the second or third line setting, they've all been studied in very small single-arm phase two studies, but again, demonstrating very, very impressive efficacy. Responses over 90%. A majority of these are gonna be partial responses, but they're durable responses. So in general, in terms when it comes to efficacy, we don't really think of there being much of a difference um, in how well the BTK inhibitors work amongst each other. So there's not a clear BTK inhibitor winner from an efficacy perspective. Dr. Nashar, can you give us a little bit more description about each of the agents, the traditional agents of inbrutinib? Yeah. Uh, so 
like we mentioned, ibrutinib, zanubrutinib, and acalabrutinib are our newer, you know, novel oral agents, very similar to each other. Minor differences in how they're administered, where ibrutinib is a once a day medication, zanubrutinib and acalabrutinib are twice daily, uh, but all three are intended right now to be given indefinitely. When we look at those traditional or historic options, we've had rituximab, we all know is a CD20 monoclonal antibody, works remarkably well in our uh, B-cell neoplasms. And rituximab is usually given either alone or in combination with chemotherapy, like bendamustine or cyclophosphamide. Um, the limitations to those uh, agents, like we discussed, being intravenous, so a little bit more invasive. And then additionally, we started um, after we were using traditional chemotherapy historic approaches before the BTK inhibitors, we started using more novel agents like proteasome inhibitors, such as bortezomib. And again, these proteasome inhibitors work really well in our plasma cell neoplasms like multiple myeloma, and they do have some good efficacy in Waldenstrom's. Bortezomib was also limited in the fact that it is given subcutaneously, so still requires the patient to come to our infusion area, and again, not as convenient as administering something in the home like an oral agent. Sounds like there's a lot of options, and someone listening that has a patient or has thought of a patient situation in the past, I want to clarify and think of, well, how would I, if I were a pharmacist and I was specializing in this and I had a patient that need this treatment, how would you choose the first line therapy for a patient? Yeah, it, you know, there are a lot of options and it's really complicated. Um, we don't have any perfect clinical trial. We're all pharmacists. We love clinical trials and data, um, but we don't have that perfect study to point to one way or another to really say that, you know, chemotherapy is better than a BTK inhibitor or the other way around, or really to say definitively one is better than the other. Um, and so right now there's, you know, a lot of things we talked about in addition to the pros and cons um, where, you know, chemotherapy is finite of six months, and then we go on a treatment holiday or treatment break, whereas oral options are really intended to get in, given indefinitely. Um, the other things we think about is really what our goals of care are and how these therapies are working long-term. And so we know that all of the available options we have right now, we're not going to cure any patient with Waldenstrom's unfortunately. And so we start to really get in the nitty gritty on how to sequence therapies to get the best cumulative long-term survival. When we think about this, and we know that these BTK inhibitors work remarkably well on the front line, but they also work remarkably well on the second or third line after patients have received traditional chemotherapy. What we don't know yet is that chemotherapy works just as well in the front line as it does in second line after a patient has already received a BTK inhibitor. And there's some concern in the medical community that with these oral targeted options, they're really great um, and that they're targeted and they go right at what we think is driving the disease, but they could be changing the biology of the disease. And so without knowing that chemotherapy is still going to work as well later on, um, we have a bit, we pause a little bit to say, how can we sequence these things? 
And so usually um, when we've presented all of the options to clinic in clinic to patients, patients really do like the finite options, even though it is chemotherapy um, and it comes with the risk of infection and other things. Um, patients like six months of treatment and then I stop and take a break. There are some patients, however, that would prefer to take an oral option. We also have to think about that these are older patients, they have comorbidities, they're primarily a Medicare population. So we're thinking about cost of therapy. These oral options can get quite costly, especially when taken for many, 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 many years without a break. Um, and so right now, I would say most patients lean towards chemotherapy up front, but there are certain patients who are not fit for chemotherapy or really who do not want chemotherapy and would prefer the oral option. And so in those patients, these oral options are, are really, really great alternatives. And then for all patients who relapse, depending upon what they received initially, these oral options are providing phenomenal second and third line options for patients, which we never really had, um, which is really great. Victoria, if someone listening in right now, we kind of want to summarize in a way. What would you say is the single most important takeaway for our pharmacists listening in? Yeah, so I guess I would say that in Waldenstrom's in particular, there are and there have been many exciting advancements. Um, this is a complicated, very, very rare disease. And so these advances have really provided more treatment options for patients than ever before, including now these no novel oral options in our BTK inhibitors. And so really the patient's preferences, their comorbidities, and the totality of their disease burden and symptoms becomes extremely important when we look at that therapy decision-making for each individual patient. I want to thank you so much, Victoria, for being part of this uh, podcast episode. Very interesting. I want to give a shout out to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect team. Thank you so much for introducing us to Victoria. And we hope to have you back on a future episode of PTCE Pharmacy Connect. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And I look forward to coming back. Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>